hello and welcome to this podcast by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name's Sarah. I'm currently an ST4 in the St George's School of Anaesthesia. My name's Ellie. I'm a new ST3 in Kent, Surrey and Sussex. So this podcast today um, is uh, just us two having a little chat about um, a career in anaesthesia. So um, our personal experiences of how we got into anaesthetics and what we think about it. Um, and then a bit about the process of getting in um, some of the good and bad bits um, and potentially a few helpful hints and tips at the end. So we hope that you find it useful. So, Sarah, how did you end up becoming an anaesthetist? Oh, thanks. I'm glad you asked. Um, so I uh, so I went to uh, university in Birmingham uh, and I thought I wanted to do obstetrics and gynaecology for some reason. Um, and so I did an FY1 job in obs and gynae um, and then quickly realised that actually the most exciting thing about obs and gynae was the anaesthetic side of things. Um, I also, at that point in my career, met some really fun anaesthetic trainees who are still good friends now. Um, and I met some anaesthetic consultants and they just looked like they had a really good um, job. Uh, they uh, they seem to go to all the fun bits. So whenever there was like a, a recess call or something exciting or someone really sick, um, they were always there and they always knew what to do. And they always looked incredibly calm and collected whilst everyone else was running around um, looking stressed. And I wanted to be like that. Um, and also um, in work, they were very competent and very good. But outside of work, they all, they all seem to have um, a good work-life balance they all really seem to like what they do uh, and so I just um, you know I'm a, so, I'm a people person I like people so I wanted to also do something that wasn't all medicine focused. Um, what about you Ellie? Uh, so I trained in Brighton had a really great time there uh, and whilst I was there I, I fairly similar to you really I realised that I really liked people and I liked working with all different kinds of people I like children I like the elderly I like pregnant women I didn't you know really particularly feel like I wanted to narrow myself down into one stream of that and then also um I I quite liked working with sick people and when I saw all the bosses managing these really difficult situations really calmly and clearly I thought that's really cool. I really want to be able to do that. So um, initially, I thought I wanted to do A&E, actually. Um, and I, I did a sort of foundation themed A&E, did lots of A&E there. And then I did an extra year after foundation um, as an educational fellow in A&E. And I absolutely loved it. I had an absolute blast. Um, my A&E mental. And I learned loads and loads and loads. <laughs> And then I went to New Zealand and was at ED Reg in New Zealand. Um, and that just really opened my eyes, really, because the, the model of care is a bit different out there. And, you know, we were intubating people in recess as ED doctors and putting lines in. And I thought, oh, actually, I think I really like this bit of the job. So when we made the decision to come back to the UK, um, I decided that I wanted to do ACCS. Uh, and I managed to get a job doing ACCS anaesthetics, which I was really chuffed about. And then um, that was brilliant because I realised I do like anaesthetics, but I also love intensive care. And I think the two marry together really nicely. So mm. that's what I would like to do, I think. Yeah. So we're going to talk a bit um, further on about the differences. So obviously, I'm a um, a single um, CCT anaesthetic trainee, whereas you, Ellie, are planning on doing anaesthetics and ITU, aren't you? So there's two major ways of going into it. So we're going to briefly mention it. But um, it's great that we can do, you don't just have to be an anaesthetist or just an intensive care. You can do both. Um, fab. Thanks. So Sarah, what's your favourite bit of the job? 
favorite bit of the job um i as i've already said i really like the people um it seems uh, someone someone very wise said to me when I was in F1, look at what the consultants are like. If the consultants look like they, they like their job, then that's probably a good thing because you're going to be a consultant for much longer than you're going to be a trainee. Um, all the consultants that I've worked with um, have um, been fun people. They've been relaxed people. They've been people that I would want to um, hang out with socially as well as professionally. Um, the other thing I really like is the one-to-one care that you give. So um, you have one doctor to one patient, um, sometimes two doctors to one patient when it comes to anaesthetists in theatre. Um, and that ratio, I don't think you get anywhere else in the hospital. And that means that you can give the absolute best care. So you have one patient, um, you, are, you are responsible for looking at all of their observations and you can tweak physiology and you can see physiology happen in real time. So all those cardiology lectures and respiratory lectures that I went to as a medical student, you can actually see um, things like the Starling's curve and um, stroke volume cardiac output, all of those things played out in practice um, with lots of fancy toys, but also just by manipulating simple things like blood pressure and heart rates. Uh, and that's really satisfying. Uh, and I, I really love that bit, bit about it. How about you, Ellie? Um, I think kind of echoing what I said earlier, I just really love the variety. Um, I get quite bad FOMO and I don't have it at all in anaesthetics and ITU yeah, because, yeah. Um, and actually I don't, um, I feel bad saying I don't miss a because there are aspects of a and I miss, but, you know, we still get to go to recess and see all, you know, the big stuff in recess. So it's not like you miss out on getting to um, see the A&E nurses and work in that environment. But you then also, you know, get to go to obstetrics and go to labour ward um, uh, and work amongst those people. You get to work with children, you get to work with the elderly. And then on intensive care, you get to watch other people be really, really clever and really smart and have good ideas about things and do crazy stuff. So, yeah, I just love the variety. And then um, my other possibly not positive personality trait is that I'm innately nosy and basically the no. most interesting and sick people in the hospital get referred to anaesthetics and ITU. So you always know, um, you know, you always know the most interesting stuff that's going on. Yeah, no, I agree. Like when I was in, you know, I think I've only ever seen one Addison's proper Addison's crisis in my time um, and I wasn't a medic or on any sort of medical ward round but they came to ITU and so that's where I heard about them so all of the cool stuff that you learn about you actually see when you do ITU and anaesthetics yeah it's great hmm. so Sarah you and um, your career plan is just to do uh, anaesthetics is that yeah right? absolutely yeah so how did what have you done so far and what's what's left for you to do yeah, so I was just going to briefly talk about the training process and then about the curriculum. So the curriculum is actually changing in 2021. So we as trainees will at some point transition onto it. But if um, anyone who's listening hasn't started anaesthetics yet, then you will go on to the new curriculum. So it's probably worth talking about that in a bit more detail. So I have done um, core anaesthetics. So that's two years, CT1, CT2 of anaesthetics. And then I'm an ST4. So I'm two years into my registrar training going up into SD7 so I have three more years left of training um, after this before I get my CCT so my certificate of completion of training. Um, the new curriculum so so sorry the old curriculum is two years of SHO and five years of registrar so seven years in total. The new curriculum is actually the same length of time so it's seven years but they've just split it into um, slightly different they've, they've broken it up into slightly different ways so they've done stage one stage two and stage three the main difference is stage one which is 
your which used to be the CT1, CT2 bit, is now three years. So CT1, CT2 and CT3. Uh, and the reason for that is that they are giving people a bit more time to get the, their primary exam. Um, anyone who knows anything about anaesthetics knows that the exams are the bane of quite a lot of people's existence. They're really hard uh, and a lot of people don't get them first time, um, myself included, uh, which was, you know, which is a shock because we're used to passing everything and being quite good at things and being good at exams for our entire life. So actually failing an exam, I'm sure is, is very character building, but it's not the most fun thing in the world. Um, so they're giving people an extra year to do the exam. Within those three years, you get something called a initial assessment of competence which is um, where you do three months at the very beginning where you learn how to give a basic anaesthetic you also have to do an initial assessment of obstetric competence so um, you have to go on to labor ward and um, learn how to do spinals and epidurals and look after the anaesthetic side of pregnant women uh, and you have to do um, six months of intensive care uh, and then you have to get your um, primary exam you then go on to stage two which is what is now st4 and st5 so sort of intermediate middle grade registrar and by that point, you have to get the final exam. So by the end of ST5, you have to have done your final FRCA. And then stage three is um, ST6 and seven. So that's your advanced or senior training. And this is when it gets a bit more interesting. So you get to choose a bit about what you want to do. You get to specialise in stuff that you like and you get to pick and choose your curriculum a bit more. So it opens up and you get to subspecialise and make yourself um, the consultant that you want to be. Um, so that's the the um, new curriculum so from a time point of view doesn't make any difference but just is giving people slightly longer to do the the exam and breaks things down in a slightly different way and then ellie you're a, a dual um anesthetic and itu trainee so tell us how that differs from what i'm doing yeah so um i, I haven't actually got an intensive care number yet but um i'm hoping to get one you're um, working on it yeah. I'm, I'm working on it mm -hmm. uh, but the way i've come through is i've done um accs uh instead of doing core anesthetic training um and it's essentially exactly the same except for at the beginning you just add on an extra year where you do six months of acute medicine and six months of a and &E. um oh. and for me my accs was three years but if you come onto the new curriculum as you were describing um it will be four years so you'll do a ct four year Sure. Um, and then if you do choose to dual a credit with intensive care, um, you have a bit of top up intensive care time to do. Um, and if you haven't done ACCS um, at that point, you would need to go back and do that time in either acute medicine or acute medicine and A&E. Um, and it actually really doesn't matter whether you do ACCS or not. So I'd say to anybody who thinks they want to do dual anaesthetics and intensive care, um, if you do get an ACCS number, great. It saves you, you know, that time in the future. But actually, it, it doesn't matter because you'll have to do that time anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't worry about it. Mm. Um, and then, of course, exams. So uh, if you do manage to get both an anaesthetics and intensive care number, you, you have to do the exit exams for both specialities. Um, but I think it's all doable. And as you said, Sarah, lots of us don't get through first time. Yeah, absolutely. Character building is one way of looking at it. Uh, but yeah, no, I know I definitely know lots of people who have decided later on they want to do intensive care. They didn't think about it as an SHA. And so they just they did two years as opposed to three. And it's not an issue now. They're um, they're just going back and doing their six months, as you say. So um, it's not it's not the end of the world if you don't get an ACCS number, is it, initially? Exactly. 
And then when it comes around to it, you have to get a number. You have, if you're going to do dual CCT, you have to get your registrar number in a deanery somewhere for either speciality. And then you would need to get your other number for the other speciality in that same deanery. So that's potentially something to bear in mind when you get there. There's absolutely tons of information online. And the Royal College website's really, really good, um, as is the FICOM website. Um, And then when it comes to recruitment, the recruitment websites are brilliant as well they always have loads and loads of documents on them and there's lots of people who've been through the process and can explain it all to you um so yeah there's information out there yeah the anesthetic national recruitment office website so anro is where you go for all of your recruitment needs but also um if you're thinking about doing it then it might be worth visiting it now because it gives you quite a lot of information about previous recruitment rounds and gives you a bit of an overview of the process but we'll go through that in a bit more detail later on So we thought what might be helpful um, is if Sarah and I just talked through what a normal sort of day in our life would be like um, at work. So Sarah's going to start by talking about uh, what a normal day on call for obstetric anaesthesia is like. Yeah. Um, So obstetrics, you usually don't do your first year as an SHO. You usually save it to your second year, so a CT2 year, when you have to get your initial assessment of obstetric competencies. Um, So that's when you might first step onto a labour ward. I know that when I first did it, I was very nervous. Pregnant women scared me. Um, I felt like there was a lot to lose. um, And some of the procedures, especially epidurals, terrified me. But very quickly, you get... um, you get used to the fast pace, you get used to screaming women um, and bossing them around um, and making your voice heard. So it very quickly becomes second nature to you. But I remember that feeling of first stepping onto a labour ward and thinking, oh, gosh, I'm not sure if I can do this. Um, so, yeah, so a typical day starts between 7.30 and 8, where you get your handover from the night shift. This usually happens um, on the labour ward, uh, looking at the board, which is where you look at all the labouring women. Um, and then you discuss uh, women that maybe you'll be involved with. So whether those are ones who um, have, a, have had a um, difficult pregnancy or a risky pregnancy, which may, which may mean they're, high, they're highly likely to go to theatre. Those who have epidurals in already, which means you need you need to go and assess them and make sure everything's working okay. Um, and then uh, people who might be coming in um, either for an elective cesarean section or for an expedited cesarean section, so whether that's a cat one, two, or three cesarean section. Once you've done that handover, you obviously um, get given a bleep. Uh, that bleep will go off for any emergencies, so cat one, cat two, um, a PPH um, in the room, anything that you as an anaesthetist might need to quickly go to theatre for. Um, and then your day really uh, depends on what's happening on the labour ward. There's usually some elective cesarean sections going on. The hospitals I've worked in, there's usually a consultant allocated to that list. But you may very well go and help them get that list started or go and see some of those patients. Um, and then you are on call for um, any epidurals that might be requested. You're on call for any cesarean sections that are not elective, as we've said, and anything else that might need to go to theatre. Um, the typical ones being someone who's had a extended vaginal tear who needs repair. Um, someone who's got a retained um, placenta uh, or who um, has had a, uh, a PPH, so a postpartum hemorrhage, um, and they may need to go to theatre for that reason. So you are on, you are in charge of the anaesthetics for those. Um, it's quite a nice job, OBS, because it's probably the first time when you feel properly independent. You're usually the first, you know, you are the anaesthetist. Um, and in the daytime, obviously, there's lots of help around. But at night, it might be that you are the anaesthetist running the labour ward and you do that um, usually as a CT2 or an ST3. So it's usually the first time in your career where you feel quite independent. And I really enjoyed that fact. Um, and watching babies being born is always fun um, as well. Um, so that's the typical day in the life of, of an obstetric uh, on call, a 12 hour shift. 
Um, how about CPOD? What is the typical day in the life in CPOD, Ellie? So um, the CPOD on call um, was probably my favourite on call, especially as a CT1, CT2. Um, so similar to how your day started, come in about 7.38 um, and take over from the night person and take over the bleep. So that bleep, the person who's normally covering the CPOD, the emergency list, often is the first person, the first port of call for the rest of the hospital. And um, so things like cannulas and cardiac arrest calls. Um, so you get most of the stuff going through your bleep. So you'll take a handover and there may or may not be some outstanding jobs to do. Um, but at 7.30 or 8 in the morning, there's, there's normally not too much to hand over. Um, and then you go and see what's booked on CPOD for the day. So um, fairly normally, there might be a couple of abscesses, maybe a couple of appendicectomies, maybe some gynae cases. And what's brilliant about the majority of those cases is they're normally the kind of cases you can do on your own. So it's really good for your own learning and your own development, especially when you're a junior and Easter test um, to be on that list. Um, and during the daytime, there'll be consultants about, so you can call them and ask them for help, but otherwise um, you can crack on. But the other thing that's good is you then get the big cases. So you, you get the laparotomies and you can get some really, really unwell cases. Um, so those will be much more consultant led. But again, they're brilliant for learning. They often need, um, you know, all the lines doing um, cardiac output monitoring. So it's a really great way to see physiology in action with a sick patient and learn how you can make them better. Um, the other thing that often happens on CPOD is, um, for example, if you have patients who have rib fractures and they might need some nerve blocks um, to help with the pain, or there might be patients who have really difficult IV access and it's decided actually they should have a, um, a more long-term long line, such as a PIC line or sometimes even a central line. And those cases will all be done on CPOD as well, so you can help out with those. Um, going into the evening, sort of similar again, the consultants might go home, but if there's straightforward cases that you can do on your own, you can do those independently, um, which is really good. And then hand over to the night team in the evening. So it's really varied. And when you come in for a CPOD on call day, you have absolutely no idea what you're going to find and what your day is going to look like, which some people might not enjoy. But I really enjoyed that. And I, I really enjoy the fact that you get to work with all the different specialities on that day as well. Mm, fantastic. Um, sorry, the, the gurgly noise that you hear is my um, 18 day old baby. So um, having just uh, described today the life of obstetrics, I have um, recently lived through it on the other side. So <laughs> I've, uh, I know both sides now. It's very exciting. So sorry about the gurgling. Um, we were going to quickly talk you through the um, recruitment process. Um, Ellie, do you want to do that? Because I think you've done it a bit more recently than I have um, in terms of what the uh, how it works um, and uh, what sort of things to do? Yeah, so when you're um, applying to start, you know, core training or ACCS training for anaesthetics, as I said, there's absolutely heaps of information available online, but the best website is the ANRO website. Um, that's got everything you need to know about it. It's got the timelines on it um, and it's also got uh, the self-assessment criteria. So recruitment initially is done online. You plug in all your details, you answer a load of questions, you put in your employment history and um, all your qualifications, all the normal stuff. Um, and then there'll be um, a selection of criteria that you have to self-rank self, self -rank yourself on. Um, uh, and that 
will partly make up your score in interview, but is also how you get um, selected for the interview. So nearly everyone who applies will get an interview. Um, but it's really good if you're thinking about doing anaesthetics to start having a look at that criteria now, because there's some really simple things you can do to sort of boost your score and boost your marks there. Yeah. So once you've um, filled in the online application, um, as I said, most people will be offered an interview. Um, so interviews all now national recruitment. So you'll go to a national recruitment centre uh, on a date and time that you've booked in. Um, and then the interview is made up of a few different stations. Um, so one is the portfolio station, and that's where your uh, your sort of self-rated score will be ratified. So it's definitely not worth lying, although I'm sure no one <laughs> do that. Uh, and then also they'll just ask you questions about yourself, why you want to be an anaesthetist and why you think you'd be a good anaesthetist. There's a clinical station where they'll give you a, a clinical problem and ask you to talk through it and how you'd manage it. Uh, and then there's a presentation station where you'll be given a completely random topic and you have 10 minutes to prepare a presentation on it uh, and then to present to the um, to the interviewers and take questions on that topic. Um, and then that's it. You'll get an overall score from those four areas. Um, and then that will form the basis of your ranking, um, which then obviously the most highest ranking person gets their number one job and so on. And that's mm. how Thanks. I think we're also quickly just going to mention um, uh, some of our top tips for the recruitment process. The self-assessment questions people seem to get really hung up on and really stressed about. I know it was something that I felt quite stressed about. Um, I think they only make up, they make up 50% uh, so 50 marks out of a possibility of 200. I think that's right. So even though it's a significant amount, it's not the majority. The majority of your marks are picked up at interview. So even though it feels like um, you may not be getting very many points in your self-assessment score, then don't panic. There is still a lot of points to be made up. And I think the people who, I don't know anyone who got anywhere near 50. Um, and I think people who get sort of um, half or even less than half is very normal in that self-assessment bit because they are trying to um, sort of give people a chance to show their full gamut of experience and some people will have PhDs but the majority of people will not have that. Um, so I suppose my advice is to look at those self-assessment questions to not stress about the stuff that you can't do anything about so if you don't have a PhD you don't have a PhD you're not gonna you're not gonna do that in two months so just write it off but there are some things that you can do to potentially give yourself a couple of extra marks so things like a taste a day I remember I found that really useful but also it meant that I got a couple of extra marks. Um, doing an anaesthetic audit um, you can usually do that quite quickly and potentially you can close the loop if it's something that's simple um, and easy to, um, to carry out. Um, attendance at courses, obviously this, these things do usually cost, so that might be an issue for some people. Um, if you're able to throw money at the situation, then there are, some, there are courses that you can do to bump yourself up a couple, of, a couple of points. So try and think about, is there anything that I can do to get myself a couple of extra points in the self-assessment questions? However, if it's going to be something that is going to take too long and actually it's just going to stress you out more, then for the sake of an extra couple of points, it's probably not worth it. It's probably worth focusing on practicing interview questions and stuff like that. So have a look at the self-assessment questions. Think if there's anything manageable that you can do but don't get mega stressed because the majority of the marks are not from those self-assessment questions. So, yeah, so I totally agree and completely echo what you say. The majority of the points are at the interview, um, not about the self-assessment criteria, but I think people get a bit hung up on it because it gives you a number and a value. For yeah. things, and people think that that's what you should be aspiring to achieve, but it's really not like that at all. Um, and then the key thing for the interview is unsurprisingly, just prepare for it. 
Um, and I think from the interviewer's shoes, what they're looking for is just friendly, approachable, normal people who are humble and are willing to learn and essentially will be really easy to train. Um, so I think if you can come across like that, then you're, you'll be absolutely fine. And um, really, it's just about being calm and having a structured approach to, to everything. So for both the clinical station and the presentation station, they can throw absolutely anything at you. Um, and you, you just have to stay calm and composed and just use a really clear structure, no matter what that structure is, to tackle the problem. Uh, and that's all they're looking for, really. Like, yeah. I can't even remember what my presentation was about. Um, I must have spoke so much rubbish. Um, <laughs> But they, you know, I'd used a clear structure and they schooled me fairly well for it. So that that really is the key, I think. Yeah. And handwriting. I remember someone saying to me on the presentation station, you know, if, if someone can't read what you've written, then that doesn't bode well. So if you haven't got very good writing, write in capitals or something, but um, try and make it clear and coherent, as it were. Yeah, definitely. And then that portfolio station, that's really sort of your chance to shine and show who you are and what makes what would make you such a good anaesthetist or you know makes you stand out so um you should you should use it as that and uh, definitely go in with a very good answer to the question why do you want to be an anaesthetist yeah yeah that's a given question they're probably going to ask <laughs> yeah. you that so it would make sense to have something prepared for that one wouldn't it um absolutely <laughs> but yeah I, I mean to everyone out there I would just absolutely not at all be put off if you don't get a job first go especially yeah. if you're trying to get a job in a competitive area yeah um, there's lots of us both Sarah and I included who've you know done extra years before we came into anesthetics yeah and actually if you talk to anesthetists it's incredibly rare that people manage to go all the way straight through to consultancy without doing something else or without yeah. having a break and that makes people interesting, especially in the portfolio station, I would say, you know, if you've um, obviously if you've gone straight through and you get a job, fantastic. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you've done something else or you've done something different, then it just, yeah, it's something to talk about, isn't it? Like the people who are interviewing you are, they're anaesthetists, they're human beings and they they are interested in probably the same things that we're interested in. So if you've done something really cool or you've done a couple of years not doing medicine or doing a completely different part of medicine, then as long as you can back it up and say, look, this is why I think this will add to my anaesthetic career, then I think that's only going to be a bonus. Um, and I, yeah, I agree. Some of the most interesting anaesthetists are definitely not the ones who've gone straight through. And every interesting anaesthetist I know seems to have failed one part of the exam at least once, which, is, <laughs> which bodes well for me, having got one more bit to, to go. So uh, it's uh, reassuring. Yeah, definitely. No, it's a great job. Um, I, I think it was definitely the right decision to make for me, even though it took me a little while to get there. Yeah. Um, and I would, yeah, just totally, rec if anyone out there is thinking about it, I'd definitely recommend at the very least just doing a taste a week because then I reckon you'll fall in love with it and it will be decision yeah. made. Yeah, I agree. A taste a week is great because it's anaesthetics is not something that you really see out on the wards and you don't really know what we do day to day unless you've gone and done a taste a week. So, yeah, definitely, definitely think about it. But it's a great job. I'm very, very glad that I've picked it and I definitely wouldn't go back or do anything differently and I think you'd find most people would say the same yeah absolutely and as we said earlier there's absolutely tons of information online and um, particularly on the college website yeah um, so have a look there but we wish you all loads of luck in your futures and your endeavors yeah thanks so much for listening <laughs>